This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Welcome, 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 everybody, to episode eight of the Best Seats podcast. I'm your host, Croft McCarthy, founder of the Best Seats. Thank you, as always, to Ali Coyle for the music for the show. You can find her on Instagram at Ali Coyle or AliCoyleMusic.com. And actually, at the time of this recording, her family's restaurants, at least two of them, Dublin Four and Wineworks for Everyone, are open for takeout, curbside pickup. Um, they're also selling wines and Ali as the sommelier for all three of their family's restaurants, Fable and Spirit included, which is coming to do pickup very soon. Depending on when you're listening to this, it may be live. They have some amazing wines to choose from. And God knows there's no better way to pass quarantine um, than with a nice bottle. Anyway, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Um, as always, I want to preference up front that one of the difficulties of launching the show during COVID-19 in this quarantine, and not to beat everybody over the head with the information, we all are sick of COVID-19, but I think that the stories coming from the hospitality world are so interesting that I'm not trying to be repetitive or morose or bring people down. I know that you're dealing with enough of that. Uh, podcasts and things like that should be escapism, um, and that's what this one is aimed to be, but I just think the information is too valuable. So it is a little on topic, and I do apologize if it's a, a little kind of beating you over the head with that COVID-19 information. Additionally, obviously, um, this episode, as well as the last one, the reality is that recording these remotely to respect social distancing and try and flatten the curve um, and try to get back to whatever our next sense of normal is after this, there are a couple uh, audio hiccups. So if you hear an audio pop, if there's a quick drop, it's just the reality of trying to catch these chefs on the go as they're working so, so hard to keep their families afloat, their employees afloat, uh, their businesses, et cetera. So I apologize. Um, please just bear with me. Uh, by supporting the show now, it's only going to get better in the future. So yeah, that's all the housekeeping news I got. This week's episode, I'm very excited to have Chef Andrew Gruel. He is the founder and owner of Slapfish. Uh, they have 26 locations total nationwide right now. A bunch of them are franchised. He's based out here, based out of Huntington Beach. They also have a handful of other concepts he and his wife do. Um, really, really great guy. You have probably seen him on Great Food Truck Race, on Food Network. Um, he's been on Cooking Channel. He's done a bunch of TV stuff. Really, really great. Very informative interview. Um, he's incredibly candid about a lot of the business aspects that I think a lot of people are overlooking, uh, whether it's regards to kind of what people on the outside can do to help, the finances, the reality of running a restaurant across multiple locations in the U.S., uh, communicating with customers at a bunch of different locations, communicating with your franchisees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a really, really informative interview. Again, if there's an audio hiccup here or there, please just kind of let it go. Understand that they won't be there in the future. These will be face-to-face sit-down interviews. Um, as soon as this kind of quarantine is lifted, but out of respect for social distancing, it's just kind of the reality of it right now. So that's all the housekeeping I got. I hope you enjoy the interview. This was a really great one for me. This is a huge guest, um, and I could not be prouder to present my interview with Chef Andrew Gruel. Enjoy. Hey, this is Andrew Gruel calling with Slapfish. Chef, how are you? Good. I'm so sorry that I uh, got mixed up here. I apologize. No, you're good. I, uh, it's it's busy out there for everyone. I can only imagine how busy you must be. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Ah, of course, of course. No, I was just taking a nap. 
<laughs> That's a great answer compared to some of the things that it could have been with everything going on nowadays. So a nap is completely warranted. So for some of the people that may uh, not know who you are, I'm sure they're familiar with your restaurants um, and all the different things that kind of you do, but God forbid they don't know who you are. Could you take just kind of five seconds and introduce yourself and just kind of give your background? Of course, of course. Well, my name is Andrew Gruel. I'm the chef owner of Flatfish Restaurant Group. Uh, we've got 26 locations around the United States based out of Huntington Beach, California. That was our first location. Uh, we actually started as a food truck way back in 2011. And uh, what do I do? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm really a glorified dishwasher. <laughs> Little more than that, probably. Uh, definitely, if people haven't seen you on TV, I know you've done stints on Food Network, um, as well as a bunch of other publications and things like that. So, that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to have you on, and I'm so grateful for the time, is you have a very interesting take on, I'm sure, kind of what's happening um, as much as everyone does, but you're one of the few kind of local chefs that are in the position of actually having uh, franchises that are nationally known. So you have, you mentioned 26 locations, but you have them coast to coast, whether it's Florida. Um, and it's one of the more interesting things, kind of with everything going on with COVID-19, I wanted to get your opinion on kind of what that's like not just managing here in California, but also having your hand in the cookie jar across multiple states in the U.S. What's it kind of been, what were the initial days like for you kind of over, uh, overseeing everything with Slapfish? No, great question because it is definitely a bit more uh, complicated or should I say integrated given the fact that we're trying to digest local ordinances, local mandates, state-based mandates in conjunction with federally-based mandates, how that affects the restaurant industry. Given the fact that obviously we fall into that essential world, we know we're going to stay open in some capacity. But then, of course, we have to be very sensitive to our franchisees. So it's important to mention our stores aren't all corporately owned. We own the stores in Southern California. Outside of that, all of our stores are franchisees. So they obviously have their own team members, their own management philosophy. Um, and we have to work closely with them to make sure they're comfortable following a lot of the processes and the procedures, as well as just in general, the notion of staying open and remaining open. Um, you know, so first and foremost, it's about, you know, comfort, safety, what procedures and protocols do we have in place? How are we making the restaurants safe? How are we making our team members safe? How are we communicating that to the guests? And then furthermore, what's our level of comfort in trying to push some of the boundaries. And I don't mean that in an, in an aggressive or dangerous manner, but in terms of, okay, should we start doing delivery on our own? Should we start offering iterations of the menu, taking into consideration that then we have to train the franchisees on how to do that in different environments and different states. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, risk reward analysis in that grand uh, position and decision-making process. So, one of the things that's super interesting to me, having kind of franchises like that, uh, you mentioned communicating with the customers, even though you do have franchises, you're still controlling the narrative and the image of Slapfish kind of as a brand as a whole. What's it been like on the communication standpoint, having all those different, you know, the states, whether, and especially a day like today, we're recording this on May 1st, for those who are listening, uh, Georgia has officially opened up today. I know you have a franchise in that state. So what's it like navigating the communication waters on behalf of the franchises to the customers in all these different states and locations? Great question. Communication is right now. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what people want to know, right? It's optics, it's communication. How are you keeping me safe? 
how is your restaurant treating their um, uh, processes differently amid the crisis? And then furthermore, us communicating from a franchisor's perspective, the beauty is social media. Everybody right now is just dipped into social media. And, um, you know, uh, we all do it, right? That's how we're getting our news. So for us, that actually makes things a lot smoother because we can constantly be communicating those messages across all the social media platforms. And it even seems like on a traditional media basis, right, um, print, um, broadcast, et cetera, they're curating a lot of their stories based on what they see in social media. So that's one of the things that I think has become really helpful in this age. How has it been? Um, I guess we have, we can't talk about the business and everything going on right now without talking about the PPP, kind of the, the elephant in the room, especially as far as some of the bigger corporations that came in and, and kind of scooped up funds are concerned. Obviously, since kind of the backlash, people like Bruce Chris and Shake Shack have returned them. What's that process been like for you uh, kind of being on that bigger side of things, even though they're franchises? What was your experience like with it, if you applied at all? Yeah, so that's that's really interesting because as a franchisor, right? We all, even our corporate stores, they're all essentially independently owned as by you know different investors. While we are the licensor, um, each store is its own independent business owner. Even the stores that we run, we have joint partners, and then our franchisees. Most of them are just one to two unit franchisees, so they're small business owners for the definition of small business owners. Um, we, a lot of them have applied, a lot of them have been successful, some of them have been not so successful and have gotten caught up in the gauntlet, uh, the gridlock of trying to get through this process. On the um, corporate side, we've also, you know, on some of our corporate stores, those joint ventures, we've also got caught up in that process and have not been successful on the PPP side, at least initially. And then even on my, I own a couple other concepts just independently, my wife and I, as, uh, you know, really, really small businesses, we've got a pizza concept in Tustin, a chicken concept in Irvine, and a vegan concept in Irvine as well. And we have been, you know, for all intents, I would say, unsuccessful on the PPP side of things because it's just been such a difficult process. Agreed. So speaking with the locations themselves for a minute, the actual kind of brick and mortar locations, I think a lot of people have a tendency right now to jump on board uh, landlords and things of that nature and almost kind of redirect and point the blame that way. It could be warranted, it could be not. But I also think that there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes with landlords nowadays, uh, given the way the laws have changed in the past 10 years, whether it's from the lending companies or things like that. What's it like with so many locations trying to manage kind of the biggest elephant in the room for so many people, rent? Yeah, and, and it is the biggest elephant on the profit and loss statement outside of your prime costs, which are food and labor. So, so it's a, it's a literal financial elephant. Um, the, it's difficult because landlords are still trying to also figure out how they're going to navigate through this. And I understand, right? Because on the one hand, you've got a lot of large landlords, right? Huge portfolios, tons of assets, tons of, tons of money on the balance sheet. But then you also have some of the smaller independent mom and pop, you know, people who have invested in a five, um, you know, a five space strip mall, if you will, um, and have leveraged a lot to get into that space. And then that's their only income. So for us not to pay them, that could potentially push them over the edge. If they get pushed over the edge, then it's the house of cards. Um, you know, so there's a lot of equilibrium that really needs to exist. It, for me, it's about communicating with the landlord, understanding their position, what we can do to help each other. 
I've suggested across the board, I think landlords should pivot into a percentage rent position for now. That way, everybody can kind of get a little piece of what's available. So if I was traditionally targeting 8% of my sales for occupancy all in, um, and my sales now have gone down to 25% of where they were, right? Then my 8% will effectively go up to 32%, right? Of my, of every dollar that comes in, 32 cents goes out to rent. That's not a sustainable proposition. But if a landlord will agree to take just 8% of sales, if the restaurant ends up doing extraordinarily well, heck, that 8% could theoretically even be higher than what they were originally getting, right? So that way you put everybody in the same boat and everyone's got a little skin in the game. <laughs> um, speak, speaking on the personnel front, there's so many big name chefs that are getting involved kind of politically between Tom Colicchio, Dave Chang, and trying to push save res- uh, restaurant initiatives. What are some things that people who may not be involved in the industry can do to help um, local small businesses and small businesses in general, but obviously the restaurants that they love and kind of want to see stay open? Yeah, and a lot of the big name chefs on the poli- the side of politics have been helpful just because banging the drum sometimes is enough to create focus, attention, awareness, dialogue, right? But as consumers, we can just support local businesses, right? And that's things along the lines of just, you know, do a pay it forward, right? Every single dollar each restaurant gets is going to be, can be make or break. So even if you want to just buy a meal for somebody else, buy a gift card, um, our dollars are our votes. Those are the ways in which we can really help all the businesses. But if you don't have the money because everybody's hurting right now, I mean, even just promotion, right? Rallying around your favorite restaurant, having the ability to increase the visibility of a restaurant and really kind of give everybody that extra push, that's huge. That's big enough right there. So it's not always dollars, but that granted they help. It's kind of that power of social media that you were talking about earlier, definitely rearing its head nowadays to try and increase visibility. Yeah, because otherwise I'd be spending money on advertising, right? So, you know, we get into the numbers of, of running business here. You, you spend two to three percent of or two to three cents of every dollar on marketing and advertising. If now you don't have the money to do that, effectively, we local, um, you know, kind of engaged and evangelized deputized community members can become your marketing mechanism gratis. And that's a huge help, a huge help. That's something important. I think we can all think about. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, This growth of Slapfish has really been kind of monumental. Like you said, starting with the food truck, obviously the multiple locations now, I mean, watching the rise ironically through social media, the past couple of years um, has just been absolutely phenomenal and wonderful to see. Were you busier before COVID-19 or have you been busier after? That's a great question. Um, It's a different busy, right? So my time now is, first and foremost, it would not be right of us to stay open and for me to sit back and try and manage things from afar. You know, I want to be in there, in the trenches, in the restaurants, with our team members, making sure that we're adhering to the standards that I'm setting forward with in regards to sanitation, cleaning, all of the elements that are now really prevalent in, in the restaurant world amidst COVID-19. So my work is different. Before, it was a lot more coordination and management um, on, a, on a franchisor level, growth, vision, strategy. Right now, it's 
back to 2011, 2012, um, getting in, you know, being as, as efficient with every single dollar as we can, but also communicating our messaging to the guests and through the franchisees. So for me, even just being in the restaurant, right, our dining rooms are closed. We're a fast, casual restaurant. People walk into the room. They walk past the dining room and then they order at the counter for me to stand there distancing myself and I can stand within the dining room and greet and engage with as many guests that walk in while I'm in the restaurant. It's huge. Um, and that's what I also want to be there to do. And that helps a lot with our, our team members too, where there's so much to communicate in regards to messaging. So that's my world. I, I think everybody's under the assumption uh, that obviously whatever our new normal is after this, we're not going back, at least not initially, to the way that things were before COVID-19, whether it's we're going to be spacing out restaurants, minimize capacity, et cetera, et cetera. Who do you think is better equipped for kind of the first day that we are starting our kind of uh, post-COVID-19 recovery? Is it the fast casuals or is it the traditional, more large kind of sit-down dining? Ooh, that's tough. I mean, I I do agree that things are not going to go back to the way they were for a long time. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's also a psychological piece here too, that I think falls outside the, outside the, the, the realm of, um, kind of government, um, easing up or, or mandates or, you know, locking down at the end of the day, even if tomorrow they said, okay, we're all done. People are scared. People are going to be anxious. And that changes purchasing power. It changes purchasing behavior. And we need to accept that. So delivery is key. Um, Minimize touch points is key. And I think we're going to start to see some of the more fine dining style restaurants pivot into a quicker service, faster casual environment or, you know, a larger family style takeout um, platform. There's going to be a lot of changes. I think there's also going to be major supply chain um, changes. And, and, uh, that's, that's, you know, I don't want to get too, too big here, but as what, you know, we're seeing with our food systems and how foods are being thrown away and yet grocery store shelves are empty in certain places. I mean, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, um, kind of confusing, confusing scenario that exists in that regard, which I think is going to ultimately affect the, the supply chain as well. So, um, everybody's got to be flexible moving forward. So the supply chain thing is actually very interesting, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. I was reading a post on Instagram the other day by Dan Barber, who was talking about basically kind of a short history of oysters and kind of how much restaurants make up the purchasing of kind of oysters in general as you deal with seafood. And I knew that this interview was coming up. It kind of got me thinking. Supply is obviously very much in the forefront of a lot of people's minds as that's kind of a leading headline on a lot of news sites talking about meat production plants. But Slapfish obviously is seafood focused. Can you talk about kind of your suppliers and what that looks like? And not so much on the national scale, getting them to the different locations, but just what your relationship is like with your suppliers, how they are hurting kind of from all of this um, and how I think they're kind of one of those unseen victims of COVID-19. We all talk about the restaurants, but not a lot of people have started to until now talked about the suppliers, the winemakers, et cetera, et cetera. Can you kind of elaborate and shine some light on that? Not, yep, and that's a great question. Um, those are the those are the people that are really getting hurt here. And seafood is, uh, you know, seafood is an area where I think that they're particularly getting hurt because processing, um, 
especially in wild capture fisheries, right? Like you've got to have your buyers lined up before you go out and catch the fish. I mean, nobody goes out and catches fish and then, you know, hopes they can sell it off the boat um, after the purchase. You know, they pretty much determine who's selling it to. Um, and as restaurants are down, you're now seeing a lot of local fishermen pivot to selling directly. And I think that what we as consumers need to start thinking about is, okay, how can we help to, um, and this is what I talked about with the regulation and decreasing some of the, some of the, the, the regulatory oversight, not to the degree that you would ever get anybody sick, but like buying directly from fishermen. That's, it's really difficult to do right now, but I think it's something that's huge because there's still an abundance of seafood, right? You don't necessarily need the processing plants and the big ag and the big processing facilities to break that down. I mean, you can go right from, from dock to, uh, you know, really from boat to plate, if you will. It's a super great point. Um, I got one of the first interviews I did with Chef Rob Wilson of Glass Bar. He shifted his restaurant to a seafood market raw bar, and he said the first couple events that he did, he completely sold out because he underordered. So that ordering for fishermen thing, and, and just direct from suppliers in general, I think I agree with you. Is something that needs to change. It needs to open up, and some of those regulations definitely need to be loosened to help support those people. Um, as far as kind of managing your team and kind of all the different aspects that go into a restaurant during all of this, what has been the biggest challenge that you weren't expecting? And then what was possibly something that was almost easier than you thought it would be directing a restaurant in post COVID-19? Um, well, obviously the biggest challenge is the unknown. Uh, you know, how can you staff, how can you purchase, how can you project budget, maintain cash flow without any knowledge of what's going to happen? the biggest challenge the the, the the brightest piece that's come out of this I think is that um, <laughs> some of the relationships you know everybody's you're really able to tell who, who's in it uh, um, you know the way we've seen the community rally around the business as we've tried to rally around the community has been you know pretty heartwarming you know to be corny so that's 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 um that's been nice. I mean, we're giving away meals. We're doing kids eat free seven days a week. We're we're giving away meals to all first responders, police, EMT, um, firefighters in uniform, and they've turned around and supported us on a level that I never could have imagined. So it's been a nice kind of uh, you know um, environment. That's really fantastic, and thank you for doing that. I know there's a handful of restaurants and groups that are doing that for first responders, and, and God knows are grateful for first responders. So thank you for feeding them and taking care of them. I know that's a sacrifice in this time. Speaking of kind of first responders, um, everything that's going on, we'll stay local. Um, obviously, Huntington Beach is where this all started. As of today, I saw that there were protests planned in Huntington Beach to reopen the beaches. Not that this needs to be a, a politically oriented answer, but where do you stand personally on kind of reopen now or kind of stay the course for a little bit as far as people staying at home as a restaurant tour and as an owner and with so many kind of different locations and people to think about, do you have a position kind of on that reopen now or stay home? Yeah. And I think that first and foremost, there's no one size fits all approach to this. Right. So that's where I think a lot of people, like to tribalize and get into their corners and dig in deep. Completely. Um, and w one thing I have noticed here, and a lot of this happens across social, is there's really, you know, the 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 dialogue is is broken um, in certain groups because whatever happened to the whole like 
having a conversation and saying, oh, that's a good point, or okay, that's a real interesting idea. It seems like now it's, okay, here's my position, take it or leave it, and we've, we've you know, here's some ad hominem attacks, and then that's it. But if you look at the way in which this virus attacks people, and if you look at the numbers, I firmly believe that there can be kind of a best of both worlds approach where you can protect those who are at higher risk, but you can also, um, you can, you can ignite parts of the economy while, um, still being pragmatic and safe. So for example, I mean, I'll use, you know, I'm speaking in platitudes, but I'll use real world examples. I mean, we've got, if you look at those people that do want to work and those people that do want to get into the restaurants and feel that they're in that kind of safe category of workers, then let them come in and work and make sure that the businesses that are housing those pe- those people in those those uh, mindsets are practicing the proper safety procedures and protocols. Um, look at the areas and the numbers where you've got uh, you know low numbers of cases, low infection rates, low numbers of deaths, and really just kind of using some of that. So we can't be taking a New York City approach to the rest of the country, right? The rest of the country isn't New York especially Orange County. Huntington Beach right now, Orange County's got, I think, up around 42, 43 deaths out of 3.2 million people. Um, and it's, it's, you know, you've got to ask yourself, what, where do, how do we approach this from a risk-reward perspective and, and kind of doing that cost-benefit analysis? So we are on board with a pragmatic approach to opening. I don't think it's a turnkey open tomorrow, but I do think that we can start to pepper in you know, easement and we can be flexible to see how that, um, you know, kind of rolls through the systems. I agree with you. I don't think it's a one size fits all. Um, and I do think that this cannot be a New York approach. Uh, not even Chicago is handling it kind of to the same degree that New York city is. New York is obviously its own animal. Do you think that when this does open and let's say that that goes through and as we kind of both agree, if you can handle it and people are safe, you keep them safe, but you do slowly reopen those businesses, are people going to be open to the fact that it's not going back to the way it was before and that there is going to be those kind of long-term altered kind of changes like we talked about? Or do you think that they'll be kind of resistant to that up front because it will feel like more of the same from quarantine? Yeah, that's a great question. That is a great question. and something I think about all the time because, yeah, it, 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 um, you can't change the, you know, one person can only do so, so much. So, I mean, we can't wave a magic wand and be like, look, it's back to the way that it was. Um, so I think given the, given the division right now, I mean, go on any social media site and just look at the division, right? It's crazy um, how just the disparity between the pro shutdown and the kind of pro open groups. So if you, if you break it down, I don't want to say party lines, but ideological lines, you know, half the people who are all about being open I still don't believe they're going to go into restaurants and start acting the way they were, go to movie theaters and and get, you know, elbow to elbow with people. I think that there's still going to be this distancing. There's going to be this, um, you know, kind of uh, conservative approach to engaging and interacting. And I think that's going to have to have a long-term burn-off until we understand how this thing plays itself through. But I do believe that there are going to be people who want things to go back to normal. And those people can, can behave and act as if, things are normal within their own world, right? I mean, that's where this, that's where this all kind of, you know, I'll use the analogy. 
yeah, would I love to be able to go to a movie theater and bring my own beer and start popping beers open? Uh, yeah, of course. I couldn't do that before. I couldn't do it now. That doesn't mean that I can say, oh, I've got the liberty to be able to go in a movie theater and do that. I mean, there's rules, right? Um, but I can still go to the movie theater and I can make, now I can buy a beer um, at movies before this. So, I mean, the analogy I use there is, is that there's always going to be restrictions to the way in which we behave in public places. And we all just have to agree to those things. There's always a middle ground. Um, so to dis- discount or dismiss one side's perspective or viewpoints on this, um, especially when it comes to health and safety, I think is, is unfair. But I do think once again, that um, there's certain, uh, you know, there's certain approaches we can take in different areas that are going to be different than approaches in other areas where maybe there's a higher amount of cases or it's more of a hotspot. Are there any changes that the state has made to accommodate restaurants um, that could go away that could be harmful? Assuming like we reopen, let's just say whatever Newsom comes out tomorrow, you can reopen, be safe, limitations, the whole nine yards like you just talked about. Yeah, the alcohol to go needs to uh, needs to continue because I think especially in a bar setting, you know, people sitting up there elbowing up to a bar is, is just a bad look. And I think the ability for people to take those drinks, even if we extend patios, Right. Um, we're seeing now the science behind this is a lot of this is, you know, you know, heat, sunlight, et cetera. Being out in the open air is helpful. I, 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 you know, once again, I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth here, but I've been searching for this and trying to find uh, um, evidence of cases that have spread in open areas outside of people making out with each other. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 you'd be hard pressed to find them. So does that mean that now we can, for example, section off a large piece of the parking lot? to spread tables out and let people drink outside. You know, I think that that's something that I think we can actually expand some of those leniencies into doing that and letting people eat outside and, and expanding certain, um, um, you know, territorial um, lines in the sand to be able to do so. So that's a great question. That is a really good question. And also look from a sanitation perspective, I think it's, I think this has been an awakening for restaurants. Um, You know, there has been, and I'm not pin, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but I got to say, I mean, I've seen restaurants operate in some pretty nasty <laughs> manners over the past, you know, decade. We've look at the case, the lawsuit and everything that came out of, you know, Chipotle and that food safety issue. I mean, there's been some yeah, food completely. safety. So this to some degree has been not necessarily a referendum, but at least a realignment of the focus on sanitation and safety within the restaurant world. Um, we've always prided ourselves on, on having, uh, you know, an award of excellence from the Orange County Health Department and, and maintaining those high standards, especially in the seafood world, right? Because we're, it's an even riskier environment. And, and it's, look, if, if you go out to eat four times in a day, you get three burgers and then a fish taco and you get sick, what are you going to think? Oh, it must have been the fish, the right? Yeah. So we're, we're, we're always targeted. Um, so, so from, the, from that side of things, I think this is good, which is why I say the gloves, the sanitation, heck, the mask too whether they're they're you know i know there's an argument about do they work or don't they work i think everyone's missing the point on the masks right the, mm-hmm. the for me the point on the masks is you don't touch your face and th- and that's that's huge right um so i think continuing that that's key uh you got to think through these things um and i think sometimes we put our brains on pause and we just tribalize this but um that, that's just my two cents 
No, it's a great two cents. I um I saw somebody write somewhere, I don't remember if it was a tweet or something like that, that someone said this is the only time in history that New York's restaurants have ever all had an A health rating because everybody's just yeah. cleaning the crap out of them. Bingo, uh, exactly. Exactly. That's a great that's a great point. And I I just couldn't help but laugh at that knowing yeah, because you're right. I mean, there are some restaurants that don't. A lot of the restaurants around here, at least that I've seen friends with, they do. But you always you always come across that one place that you just kind of cringe a little bit. And then you just say, well, you know, we'll make the best of it. Um, yeah. so obviously, yeah. you're you're a family man. You've got kids. Um, what's what's it kind of been like juggling a family and all of this kind of because you're in that precarious spot that I think some restaurant tours are, but some are not where they may not have families or at least young children, where you are kind of in the trenches doing what you can to keep your businesses afloat and keep your people afloat, but still understanding that you have to go back to a family. God forbid, you know, you don't want to be exposed. What's that kind of balancing act been like for you? Yeah, certainly put, you put the kids ahead of everything um, and you put family first. That is always important. So as much as our family, we're a restaurant family. When we go open restaurants, when we work the restaurants, our kids are in there with us day in and day out. And, that's something we've had to cut off. I haven't brought the kids to the restaurants. Um, just can't afford to do so. I mean, heck, when I go pick up seafood from fishermen or if I'm doing wholesale food runs, the kids always come with me. And it's been really tough on them. Yeah. The, the good thing, look, if there's any silver lining in all of this, is that, and any of us know with kids, I mean, you know, for this to be less of uh, a concern amongst kids is huge because I got to say, um, you know, the same way I want to lock my parents down who are a lot older um i would have my kids <laughs> in a bubble right I, that's just the way that this is mm-hmm. so it's affected things but but most importantly for them it's been really hard because their worlds have been turned upside down and i feel for the kids i feel for the teachers i feel for that world um and it's been hard it's hard for my wife and i to just to be running the business and also taking care of the kids and trying to keep up on their education and homeschooling I mean, there's some days where I'm just like throwing Cheerios on the ground and saying, okay, count the Cheerios. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets to teach what subject? What does your wife teach? What do you teach? Who becomes uh, a teacher at home? Um, I, I teach life skills and she, <laughs> she goes to the uh, formalized uh, academics. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So you do PE. I like it. Yeah, I do, I do <laughs> PE and uh, econ. That's great. Well, Chef, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you are very, very busy. Um, if people wanted to reach out to kind of talk to you, to follow you, the restaurants, where's the best place to do that? Obviously, kind of social media is key, but what are the accounts and uh, the best places to do that? No, that's great. Thank you. Um, I, and I really appreciate the fact that you've let me uh, have this platform to chat a little bit. Um, and it's been fun chatting with you. So the best way to get in touch with me, I mean, look, if anyone wants to talk to me personally, they can email me at Gruel at gmail.com that's my personal email you can follow um flatfish on instagram at flatfish flatfish seafood on twitter you can follow me on chef gruel on twitter um i'm always on twitter that's kind of my one platform and instagram at andrew gruel so there's uh www.flatfishrestaurant.com is also where you can stay up to date on a lot of the flatfish news um find out info on all the locations that's awesome uh Chef, one last question that I had for you, and I was going to ask it earlier, and it got lost in my notes. Um, what does food television look like after this? Because you are someone who has done stints on TV, food truck race, et cetera. What does that kind of look like? I mean, obviously, we have the slew of the cooking at home shows, but where does kind of food and kind of the, especially the notion of the celebrity chef kind of go from here? 
That's a great question. And um, something I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, you know, early on in my career, I went down, you know, at that crossroads where I could have stayed through and made food TV my career. I stuck with the business side of it, but I have a lot of friends who are involved and I, and I, and I feel for them because there's a limited space when it comes to like zoom TV. Right. Um, you know, I've done a couple zoom segments already from, um, you know, some bigger stuff and local ABC news and it's great and it's really effective, but it's limited. Um, I think food TV is going to get into more of a journalistic area when it comes to food, which I think is great, right? I think the journalism of our food systems and how this pandemic has affected food systems locally, nationally, and globally, we're going to need a lot of personalities to be able to tell those stories. Um, and we're starting to see that across social right now. And then I think in terms of actual, I call it dump and stir food TV, mm-hmm. where it's like really recipe driven. I think that's also going to be somewhat somewhat limited so there's going to be some pivots that need to be made but the good news on that is i think we're going to see some chefs go back into the private world of running food businesses and you know selfishly as one who loves to go out and eat i would much rather go and eat a chef's food than watch him on tv him or her on tv and i'm not saying that because i don't like the tv element i'm just a hands-on guy and they haven't made scratch and sniff tvs yet so uh (laughs) that's that's kind of my my two cents on that, but that's a really, really good question. So, you know, summarized answer, I would say food journalism is the, is the move. Well, that makes me happy to hear. So, well, chef, thank you so much for the time again. Um, I hope you stay safe. I hope slapfish and everything comes out of this completely fine. It's all the other things come out fine. I hope your family does well. Um, and yeah, thank you for carving out a little bit of time to uh, chat. Of course. And likewise, um, really, really appreciate it. Just, uh, shoot me a message if you want to come into slapfish and we'll be, we'll make sure we drop the balloons. <laughs> I'll do what I can. All right, Jeff. All right. Thanks. Take care. Enjoy the. That was Chef Andrew Gruel. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please be sure to go to thebestseats.com to check out more. That is C-E-A-T-S for seats. You can follow me on Instagram at thebestseats. Obviously, you can follow Chef at all the locations he gave. Uh, Moving forward, please be sure to tune into Patreon. There will be some news about exclusivity moving forward, uh, special access for patrons, et cetera, et cetera. I think being this many episodes in at this point, um, it's safe to say that we can start to pay back those who are supporting me on Patreon. So thank you so much. Be sure to tune in next time for the Best Seats Podcast. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash thebestseats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Talia Samuels, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support.